This is Peter Jonathan Robertson with episode 162 of the PJ Archive, which is an interview I did with the English middle distance athlete Roger Bannister, who on May the 6th, 1954, made history by becoming the first person to run a mile in less than four minutes. His record time of three minutes. 59.4 seconds he attained with minimal training while practicing as a junior doctor. He went on to become a renowned neurologist, pioneering research into the autonomic nervous system, as well as the first chairman of the Sports Council and Master of Pembroke College, Oxford, before retiring in 1993. Sir Roger Bannister died in 2018 at the age of 88. This interview took place in 2009 at the house in Oxford he shared with his wife Moira. I began by asking him if he was from a sporty family. Not at all. I mean, my father was a junior civil servant. Um, he had passed the boy clerk's exam from his small village in Lancashire when he was 15, came up to London. He was at Cone Secondary Grammar School, I suppose it was called Cone Secondary School, so did well in these exams. But later in his life, he told me that he had a watch chain and there was only one event at school, which was an um, annual mile race, a sports day, and he did win it. So there we are. Yes. Uh, he had never evinced uh, any other particular interest in activity in sport. I mean, he was involved at the end of the First World War, and I suppose one, one thing and another. He was always quite busy with the family and his work, I suppose. So he didn't tell you that till later in life? Uh, well, I can't remember when, when he did, but uh, it... It, it, it certainly wasn't obvious to me. I suppose he told me probably when I was in my teens, but he was sufficiently interested to take me. Well, how much I pressed him to take me, I don't know. Um, when I was 16, uh, he took me to the White City, and it's, this is described in the book, mm -hmm. um, uh, and Sidney Woodison was running against Arm Anderson, and uh, Sidney Woodison ran 4-9, that was the end of the war, and of course Sidney Woodson had run four minutes, four seconds before the war, and had briefly held the um, world record. What about your brothers and sisters? Were you? I only had one sister. Right. My father was the youngest of eleven, which was a not an unusual family size in late Victorian times, but I think he and my mother, who also came from a neighbouring village in Lancashire, sort of went the other way, <laughs> and uh, they, they believed in a small family, uh, just, just, just the two of us. My sister, who is uh, two years older, is a good tennis player, oh, right. and uh, she uh, still plays tennis at the age of 80. So you're not really from a medical family either, by the sound of it? Well, I am, in the sense that I had a cousin. Uh, one of my uh, father's older brothers, he became a schoolmaster. He took an external degree from Manchester University. And he had two daughters. And one went to Liverpool University and became a doctor. 
and became a consultant anaesthetist and came to Oxford as an anaesthetist. And uh, the other daughter, a younger daughter, from her school in Cone, got to Oxford and studied English. So there were sort of um, some academic uh, potential uh, there. Did they encourage you in that direction then? Well, I did come up to Oxford to visit them. Uh, eventually my father owned a motor car and we used to go somewhere at weekends sometimes to day visits. And we did come to a day visit to Oxford and I suppose I would probably be about 12 or something like that. And we met them. So I first saw Oxford when I was, uh, I suppose, 10 or 11, something like that, and made an impression. Mm. But I was evacuated during the war. I was at a primary school in, in West Harrow and was due to take my 11 plus, but then war broke out and so I went to Bath and I went to a secondary school in Bath and it was there that I realised that I had some running ability and won cross-country races and then sports day races and Victor Ludorum and and so on. And then I didn't do any, came back to London when the war was over in 1944, well, before the war was over, and then spent two years at a day school. I got a scholarship to University College School in Hampstead and worked pretty hard, didn't do any much sport. I had to play rugby and so on, but they didn't have sports days. And uh, it wasn't really until I got up to Oxford. I was 17 when I came up here, and it was mainly an ex-service university, but I was one of the few schoolboys who were allowed up because I was studying medicine and they didn't want us to do conscription. And so one of the equalizers with those from school and those who were mature and been in the army was to get involved in sport. Mm. And so that was when I began to make a mark. I became president of the athletic club in Oxford and built a new track that was a whole three, uh, three miles, three, one, one third of a mile for each lap, uh, which wasn't a very good track. And so I managed to get that changed. And that was the track on which I ran the four-minute mile later. But I came back. I was then a medical student in London, just about to qualify as a medical student, and I came back to uh, to run the four-minute mile. You explained that you did your first running when you were at school, when you were evacuated. But did anyone tell you then that you know you really have got a special gift, or were you just considered like everybody else quite good? Well, I broke records, you know, so I, I was better than those who had preceded me, I suppose, and held the record for the cross-country run. But I'm not quite sure what time, if I did run a, a mile, I think half mile was the event, particular distance event, but I can't remember what times I did, but I, I won them, yes. Were there any other sports that you ever found preferred almost? Well, I was encouraged in London to play rugby. I was a good, quite a good scrum half. I played for the school second 15, did a bit of rowing. So, I mean, I enjoyed all sports, oh. but, but I don't think I had the sort of skills that make you a great ball games player. Oh. 
It does seem that in that era you needed to come from a particular background to succeed in sport. Would that be a fair comment? Like, you know, they don't see many working class people in that era coming through, as it were. Uh, well, running was a working class sport. I mean, right? uh, yes, um, I mean, and there were Harrier clubs. Mm. And when I first started here, I lived in Harrow, and the Finchley Harriers had heard about me or they were. Um, able to give me training facilities in the vacation and I joined them so it wasn't of course on the scale it is now but there were in most towns um, a cross country or a Harriers club and you're a tall man was that a good thing for athletics well I was 6'1 shrunk a bit since I suppose but I mean um, that was tall Seb Coe is uh, about five, five, nine and a half. Steve Ovet uh, was um, just about six feet. Cram was taller. So 800-meter runners are a bit taller than milers, yeah. but your milers can manage with a you know, range of different heights. I mean, Sidney Woodson was only, you know, five foot six. So there you are. And how much did studying medicine help you with understanding athletics and, and getting a deeper knowledge of it? Well, everyone assumed that it must do, but in fact it didn't. All a, a medical student or a scientist knows is trial and error. I mean, if you try a form of training and it doesn't seem to be working, then you better try some other form of training. But I was involved in uh, training myself most of the time, so it was a matter of pursuing logic and trying to work out what fitted my own physique and inclination and of course my own opportunities because I was having to work reasonably hard as a medical student uh, but of course this um, let me down in 1952 when I didn't win the Olympic for 1500 meters which I had been expected to win I mean I had done the fastest times in the world at the time and um, unfortunately for reasons which were fairly complex but actually not necessary. I did three races in successive days and I came fourth. So, so that, if, if I had won that, I would almost certainly have retired because medicine was obviously my objective in life. I wasn't going to continue as an athlete after I'd finished being a student. And it um, was getting rather difficult. So the only reason that um, I continued was that I felt let down. I let myself down and quite a lot of other people felt let down too. Uh, the only gold medal we got in Helsinki was a horse called Fox Hunter, uh, ridden by Colonel Harry Llewellyn. But, uh, mm -hmm. but so I went on for the other two years, but fortunately, before I retired, um, there were, A, there was a four-minute mile, and B, there were the, what were then called the Empire Games in, in Canada. My most important race was the race in Vancouver, because by then John Landy had broken my world record and uh, obviously we were lined up and, and athletics is really about races, Olympic, European um, and Empire. Uh, they're not races in which world records are usually broken. You have to have a different yeah. um, objective. If you want to break a world record, you've got to be quite sure that the the pace is, is even pace, whereas championship races are won by jockeying for position and then making sure that you have a faster finish. 
bearing in mind you were to experience Olympic disappointment, yeah. did you ever regret turning down the invitation to the 48 Olympics? Uh, not really. I turned it down on wrong grounds. I turned it down because I thought I would um, was too young, and they, those days people imagined that fatigue or staleness and uh, you could uh, overrun. I think that wasn't true. But I wasn't ready to do other than get into the final. And um, I was involved in the administrative office. So I got some experience of administration in sport and had a first-hand view of what was involved. I enjoyed my London Olympics. Yeah. Mm. But don't you think, had you actually competed there, it would have given you that much more of an yeah, insight? It, it might have done, but it, it, the events in London were heats, a day's rest, and a final. <laughs> and ever since Helsinki, there has always been a day's rest uh, before before the, the final. So it was, I think, just a piece of bad luck, if you like, that they were held in this particular way. I, if, 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 if I had foreseen it, or maybe anyway, I should have trained harder. And of course, my training was uh, minimalist if you compare it with what um, Seb Coe and the others yeah. were doing. But then, of course, they were running much faster. Were there any uh, aspects to training and diet uh, advice in your day that perhaps would be completely laughed at now or, or frowned upon even? Well, I never had any dietary uh, preparations or ideas. Um, my diet was, was entirely normal. Uh, the, the training, uh, which was being introduced then and which has been taken much further since, was interval running. And that uh, came originally from Sweden and uh, Arne Anderson, Gunder Haig, who broke the world record during the war. Sweden was not at war. They, in, in fact, I suppose, used this running on grass rather than on tracks and variations in speed. It was given by the name Fartlek, F-A-R-T-L-E-K. That was the technique. And I had read about this and it makes, made sense. Uh, you, you're obviously an extremely intelligent man. How much do you put down your success to you know, tactical awareness and, and smartness? Uh, well, the challenge and the interest to me in running was the tactics of middle distance ra racing. Oh. And um, it does involve a particular type of intelligence but um, an understanding of your strengths and weaknesses your opponent's strengths and weaknesses and trying to turn these to your best advantage I mean I knew that John Landy was probably stronger than I was and I had to persuade him to set the pace mm. which I would not have been able to do uh, or if I had set the pace I wouldn't have had a, a good finish so I ran the last lap of my last race before that event which was the British uh, Mile Championships in 53 seconds just to try to persuade him that if he didn't set a fast pace then he couldn't expect to win 
So did you do quite a bit of research on your opponents, on your rivals? Did you uh, swat up on them? I didn't do research. The, the facts were there in the newspapers that he had run four minutes and two seconds on four occasions in, in, nine, in 2000, in um, uh, 1953. Um, and therefore it was obvious that under better circumstances he would break for, for minutes. In some of those races he ran from the front. Oh. So he was a good front runner. You explained that um, had you won in Helsinki that you would have quit. But since you came fourth, did you ever, were you ever so disappointed you thought, I'll throw in the towel now? Uh, no, I didn't. I mean, I suppose I had in my own mind the plan of winning the gold medal and retiring. What would have happened if I'd came second or, or third and, and got a silver or bronze medal, I can't quite say. But it didn't take me long to realize that I wanted to continue and would try to continue. From when you started competing as an athlete, mm. had there always been discussion about, you know, amongst everybody, who would be the first to crack the four-minute mile? Well, the, the, there's a journalist um, who had been a former British mile record holder at 4.10 or something, and he was a the athletics correspondent of the News of the World, and I think it was he who first said that I believe uh, Roger Bannister is capable of it, oh. and that would probably be in about 1950 or 49 or 50, and then my times came down 47, you know, 45, and then everybody started to talk about it. But there was a strong school of thought that it was impossible. Oh, yes. Did well, you ever believe it was impossible? Uh, no, I think my, my, my medical training led me to feel that that was not logical. I mean, if a person can run a mile in four minutes and two seconds, then by some better training, better weather, more even pacemaking, should be possible to knock off two seconds. So, no, I never thought it was... It was, uh, if anything, it was a psychological, not a physical barrier. Mm. And on the day you did it, did you have a gut feeling that this could be your day? Uh, yes, the weather was bad, and so I didn't make up my mind until about 20 minutes before the race that I would make the attempt, uh, because if you um, are trying to break a record, if the weather is bad and there's a wind, then you'd have to run three... 56 in order to run the equivalent of four minutes yeah, I understand. and I, I was satisfied I could break four minutes on a, on, on, on a good day but it was a bad day the question was whether to attempt it on a bad day and then suffer the disappointment and disappointment of those who were had come to watch so I didn't advertise the attempt although most, quite a lot of people knew it was a possibility would you prefer to have achieved that in a major championships in front of a huge crowd rather than just 3,000 people at Ifley Road? Well, I, it's not really possible. I don't think it would have been possible to do it in an Olympic or a... Um, there is no, no Olympic distance of a mile. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it had to be done on rather, on rather yeah. a special occasion. Harold Abrahams was there that day. He yes. was timekeeping and um, and he was commentating, I believe, as well. Yes. How much of a hero of yours had he been? Well, uh, he wasn't a hero in the sense that he'd been a sprinter. <laughs>
Right. Uh, but nonetheless... A gold medalist, yes. Yeah. Well, he was a very shrewd man and played an important part both in the administration of athletics and, and was wrote uh, for the Sunday Times and broadcast for the BBC. After I became a doctor and after I was established, I did myself uh, write for the Sunday Times I, on, on Olympics and other major events. So I suppose that I found writing and journalism quite interesting, provided it didn't take any time away from my principal activity, which was, was neurology and neurological research and writing papers about neurology, writing books about neurology. How much do you feel your athletic achievements were helped by rivalries, rather like Seb Coe and Steve Ovett, who were to have years later? You were to have well, John Landy, for instance. Well, absolutely. I mean, Wes Santy was, in America, was perfectly capable of it, and John Landy, so there were three of us. And uh, what made my rivalries rather different, it was that they were in different countries, whereas uh, Steve Ovett and, and Seb Coe, of course, were in the same country. And Steve yeah. Cram, yeah. Cram was uh, came on after. Yes, yeah. he he wasn't in the same quite the same time. Can you explain the whole concept of pacemakers? Because I never quite understood. Uh, you you had Chris Brasher and Christopher Chatterway. Yes. I mean, what if they were to say on that day, "We want to go for it." You know, we think we well, can crack the. Well, no, neither of them were were capable of it, and of course they both recognised that. Right. Um, so, as I think they were quite happy to play a part in what they hoped would be a successful world record. Chris Brasher was not, probably not done faster than a 4.8 mile, um, and he was a steeplechaser. And he eventually, of course, went on and won the steeplechase in Melbourne and got a gold medal. Uh, Chris Chatterway, again, was really a 5,000-metre or 3-miler miler, not a, an 800-metre. And I think you've got to be able to run a fast 800 metres in order to be a good mile. I mean, Sebco, of course, held the world record for the 800 metres. And as, so I suppose uh, Chris Chatterway was, was, was capable at that particular time. He, I think, would have been capable about four, five, four, six, or something like that. But I, I was grateful. They were friends, and we trained together, and we trained particularly for this event. And we'd come under the general coaching of someone called Frank Stanford, who was actually Chris Bracious' coach. And then he became Frank's, and then he became Chris Chatterway's coach, and then I joined, as it were. Mm. And uh, since the famous day, how often have you run this mile in your head, uh, in your dreams even, at night time? Well, not much. <laughs> I've got quite a lot of other things to think sure. about. <laughs> I mean, other people may remind me of it, as though that makes me think about it. Mm. And at the time, when you crossed the line, how long before you knew that you'd done it? Was it only when it was announced by Norris McGuerter? It was only when it was announced by Norris McGuerter, a uh, long announcement. Uh, but, of course, I knew that the first lap was 57.7, and that the half mile was 158, so that I was ahead of schedule. And then, as very often happens, in the third lap, the race slows down. I suppose you know, Chris Chetterway was then leading, and he was already, I suppose, feeling a bit tired. And the three quarters was three minutes 09. 
so there was the problem mm. uh, that I was aware that it had slowed to over three minutes and what I wasn't quite sure of was whether after this you know, fast start and fast half mile I could do the last lap in uh, 59 and you fortunately could. When you crossed the line, was the crowd quite quiet until the announcement was made? Or they went pretty nuts, didn't they? Yes, they did, they did, yes. They, um, they sensed it, didn't they? I think so. They, they knew that it was so close, I think, yes. And how did you feel about the way Norris uh, drew out the whole announcement? Oh, well, he was a good friend, and uh, I thought it was very clever. He was a, he was a journalist, <laughs> and he had a sense of occasion, and not many people would have known exactly which records it was were broken so he mm. announced it in the whole series and apart from breaking the record what did you actually win that day did you win a trophy or a prize of any no kind? I, I, well i think probably those who won events in this three a's amateur athletic association versus oxford university they prepared the medallions i don't i don't know where mine is but i'm sure that mm. there was some kind of token of, of, uh, of, of uh, winning, yes. And had you not done it that day, would you have tried again to? Oh, yes. I think you were very aware of other people breaking it before you, weren't you? Well, Landy had already gone to Finland to do it, mm. so I knew I hadn't got much time, and I wasn't sure whether there would be another event which was appropriate. And did he ring you to congratulate you or anything, or was Who? it just Landy? I think what happened was that the press would immediately contact Bring him. him yeah. People didn't phone much in those days. I'm not mm. sure that we even had a phone in my in my home. How often have you contemplated the uh, consequences? Had you done this during the modern professional era? Had this all happened then? I mean, financially, it would have been enormous for you. Well, I'd never any interest in professionalism. Not that it existed on the scale it does now. No, no. So I don't think that was uh, uh, relevant. I just was going to, would qu I qualified a month after the four-minute mile as a doctor, and I was, as it were, filling in time until the race in Vancouver and then the European Championships, which was a very important race. I mean, on behalf of the Americans not being in it, I really had... Commonwealth and Empire. So the other part of the picture were these European games. Mm. And they were good European runners, Gunnar Nielsen and others. But you did brilliant. It was a great year for you, 54, wasn't it? Do you well, think that your confidence was hugely boosted by breaking the Formula Mile and that gave you the extra? Well, yes, and I had, uh, I had trained um, harder, so I felt I was, I was stronger, yes. Mm. Yeah. And was it a question of also, although you uh, quit to go into medicine, yes. um, you were thinking, well, what else can I achieve now? I'm half from, yes, well, I, I had to stop because of the medicine, mm. but in a way I felt satisfied that uh, yeah, I'd been running quite hard then uh, for eight years. That was the length from, from the age of 17 to the age of 25. So there was something at the end of it, yes. And how did you feel about the international fame that this achievement gave you? Well, it, it created problems for me in that there was uncertainty in the medical profession as to whether someone who was a, a prominent athlete could also 
be a serious doctor. So I think that I had to be more assiduous in my medical work because I was competing in order to become a successful consultant in a particularly demanding area of medicine, neurology, which you know, is accepted as being particularly challenging. And how often did you get cases where you met patients and they were more interested in you? Than well, I, the people throughout my life, I, I've had good opportunities. I think that the one thing I would explain to you is that after I had become established as a consultant neurologist, I had always had an interest in the wider aspects of sport and its management, its control. And when the first sports council was brought in by Harold Wilson's government, I was a member of it and became chairman of its research committee. And so I was concerned with research into the effects of altitude. We were having the Olympics in Mexico. Uh, and uh, these kind of issues. And then, when the government changed, I've had no political, uh, party political uh, um, affiliations of any kind in my life, but I've been interested in doing things for government if it was within my power to do it. And they then asked me to become chairman of the first independent sports council, also called an executive sports council. And during that period, I introduced the idea of having multi-purpose indoor sports centres, of which we had very few, and given our bad weather, it was something that we certainly needed. And I think by the time I finished, there were several hundred, and the programme went on, and we were very well provided for, as far as these centres were concerned. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing was that it was continuing the idea of sport for all, in other words, getting um, people in their local environment access to these and uh, a general improvement of aspects of national health by virtue of exercise. And then the third thing was that I realised that drug abuse in sport was beginning to become uh, a problem. It started in California in the 60s and then had gradually spread. And so I was able to appoint a chemist at St. Thomas's Hospital to devise a test for anabolic steroids, a, uro, a urinary radioimmunoassay test of enormous sensitivity. And that is still used as one of the screening wow. tests by WADA mm -hmm. and by the drug testing centers. And I actually took the specimens and bottles out to the 1972 Euro, no, um, Empire and Commonwealth Games in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, brought the specimens back, and my chemist was able to detect there were positives. I only did it on the basis of no names, just to establish that it, it, the tests were effective. And a uh, disappointment to me um, has been the length of time, <laughs> if there was an effective test, in 1972, the length of time it's taken before the matter of drug abuse in sport has been brought under control. I am quite optimistic now, 
for several reasons. One is that from Beijing, they've decided to keep every test, every specimen, so that although there were designer drugs being introduced, uh, which were not on the list of those that were tested for, they now will, will be. Mm. And uh, I do believe the attitude with Rogi, who's the new president of the IOC, is quite different from Saramanch, and he is quite determined to bring it under control. And so you've now got the uh, CBI and the International Drugs Federation uh, involved. You've got the World Association Against Drug Abuse, WADA. Dick Pound is chairman of it. And you've got um, 28 testing centers. And uh, the amount of money that's being spent is, uh, is enormous mm. because uh, they see it as threatening the future respectability of the sport. So I do feel that for the first time in, I suppose, uh, 10, 15 years, we are making very good progress. And the whole thing, of course, came to light through East German abuse. You have been quoted as saying you feel that the greater achievement in your life has been your medical career rather than your athletics career, but has your medical career given you the satisfaction that your... Oh yes, my medical career is by, by far the most satisfying, most important, but I do see the earlier life as an athlete as having some kind of uh, social relevance in that I have become fortunately involved in, in administration and when I finished with the Sports Council um, and retired from the Sports Council I then became chairman of an international committee of um, sport and physical education set up by Philip Noel Baker, the Nobel Prize winner, Lord Noel Baker um, and spent six years being involved in the international field so I always felt quite happy to uh, do more than one thing at one time but the overall you know 90% of my uh, interest activity work has been medical can I interject oh my wife is interjecting um, my husband was given a couple of years ago the first ever accolade from the American neurological um, the American Academy of, of Neurology. Neurology. It was the first lifetime one ever given, but he is so modest that it didn't appear in anything in Oxford or anywhere else. Yeah. There was an international meeting in Copenhagen, which was entirely based on my husband's work. They came from all over the world, Japan, America, everywhere, and they have instituted an annual lecture in his name, and he has part of St. Mary's Theatre all over the place. No Donny public knows about that side of his work, <laughs> but in neurology he instituted a new field. And yes. how long have you been married? 54 years. 54 years. Did you meet through university or something? Or? Not really. We just met in an ordinary party. And may we know if you have children? Four children, 14 grandchildren. Really? Wow. We have two daughters who live in Oxford. 
One is married to a professor of medicine here, and she has five children. And is a professional painter. And is a professional painter, which is where my wife is also a professional oh, painter. Yeah. And the other daughter is a priest. She's got four sons under the age of 11, 12, and she's a priest at the university church which is called the St. Mary's Church in, in the High Street. So have any of your children or grandchildren gone into athletics at all? Well, both my sons studied PPE, that is economics, in Oxford. And one is the senior, a senior manager at HSBC Bank and in charge globally of insurance. And the other is in New York, and he spent Daniel 17 years uh, with uh, J.P. Morgan, the bank. Uh, but he uh, has two children, and the London one has got three sons. So there are 14 in all, and they all take part in sport. And some of them play rugby and do rowing and also do do some running. One of my four children who is most involved in running, he ran a 254 marathon in New York some years ago. Do you do any form of exercise these days? Yes, I, we were involved in a car crash. Not my fault, but at any rate, I was lucky to be alive after it was a collision. And I got my ankle caught and that was when I was 45, and I had run all the time up till then, recreationally. Uh, so I couldn't because of this fracture. But in the last year, bizarrely, I've managed to find some shoes which are based on the Marzai tribesman shoes, which were made out of car tires, from which I can um, make a roll. And see, it appears to be, um, you know, it appears to be make it easier for me and not get get pain. So, so I I I I do run in the park or on a cricket ground. And over the years, since that uh, legendary day, have people yeah. challenged you whenever they've seen you uh, jogging or something? They said, "Come on, let's I'll oh, beat you." Only a, a memorable time when the kind. Yeah. wrote a third leader about it. There was a, a wonderful picture that appeared in several papers of my husband uh, competing in a prep school yes. race <laughs> in London. Yes. And he said to the boys at breakfast, you know, I'm not going to run uh, 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 today. And their faces fell. Mm. I was agony to see them. So what happened, he did. And the headline was, Roger Bannister wins by the width of a waistcoat button. <laughs> because he was dressed to go on, it was morning actually, yeah. he was dressed to go on to hospital immediately. Mm. And there were lots of fathers mm. who were in braces. And the Times made a, mm. a comic third leader. And doctors then did wear waistcoats, huh? Tell me about being a master at Pembroke College. What does that mean exactly? Well, there are 30 colleges in Oxford. Yeah. Some are large, some are small, some are rich, some are less rich. And I suppose I've always responded to the possibility of new experiences, and I was phoned 
in London to ask if I would consider uh, taking this post. And I was 56. My medical life was well under control. And I decided that I would accept it. So I came up to Oxford and they appointed me. And we then lived for eight or nine years in the college. There were some special lodgings, very nice lodgings, for the master of the college, usually is in most colleges. Lots of problems, very interesting, students, fellows, lectures, fundraising, going to America, and, and, and so I very much enjoyed that. And then in 93, I didn't retired, I had done medical work at the same time, going up to London each week, and was writing books. And then uh, the question was, when I retired in 93, should we go back to London or should we stay here? By then I already had one daughter with children who was married and was here, and I found Oxford a fascinating place. One way or another, I'd spent quite a lot of my life here, and so we decided to downsize, and instead of going off to stay outside Oxford, we decided to come and live here. And I spend my time going to meetings and dinners and uh, um, seminars, and uh, tonight we're going to... David Attenborough is a guest at the college, and we've been invited to have dinner there. And so it's a, it's fascinating and a wonderful place to live. So you still a strong connection with Pembroke College, then? Well, with other colleges too. Yes, right. I was a student myself at Exeter College. Oh, then I was a, a Hansel Scholar, senior scholar at Merton, um, and then then Pembroke. So that's three, and, uh, and there's Paris another one. Yes, there's another one. Am I right in thinking a lot of memorabilia of your career is at Pembroke? Though, that, yes, it, it is. Yes, you can go and see it if you want to. It's yes, a whole waterfall. Yes. Do you think uh, the three-minute mile is ever going to happen? No. Or do you think it's, it's no, I, I said that when I broke in the formula, I said I think a three-and-a-half-minute mile could be possible. And uh, they've now got down to uh, 3.43. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's taken, given that the new tracks are four seconds faster over a mile. Um, it's improved by about 15 seconds in 60 years. So, provided people think it's worthwhile going on running and more East Africans turn up, you know. How, how much difference has your knighthood made to your life? I think it could have been a slight embarrassment if I was at an earlier stage. Uh, but um, by the time I received it, which was in relation as much to my work as chairman of the Sports Council as anything. Well, I'm... A friend very wrote and said, you realise yeah. you're in for a surcharge. Yes. Everywhere. Life I thought it was rather free. No, I mean, I, I welcome it. And, okay. Do you have any ambitions in your life still? Well, I, my ambitions essentially lie with my grandchildren. I mean, in the sense that I take a very close interest in their education, and it's wonderful seeing them gradually forming as characters, uh, having their own interests and developing. I, I, I would wish to watch that as long as I am allowed to. I wondered if perhaps you wanted to lead the parade at the 2012 Olympics in London. Or no, no, I'm quite happy to find somebody else to do that. And how would you like people to remember you after you've gone? Well, I 
lived at a time of great transition. I was born in the interwar years. I lived through, as a schoolboy, the World War. And I've seen, was bombed when I was evacuated to Bath, bombed when I came back here with the V1s and the V2s. And I've just seen, uh, was able to make some achievements in sport, and then I've lived through a very interesting phase in the evolution of, of medicine and neurology. Interesting evolution of political and change. Society has changed enormously while I've been alive.